1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's where our Bible reading has been taken. Dealing with a case of incest, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you. In this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you, re as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunken or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Sonia, thank you for reading. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to look at that passage together. Our Father, um, thank you that you have breathed out the words of Scripture. And we pray, Father, that as we meditate on these words in 1 Corinthians 5 today, that you'd be growing us in unity and maturity as the body of Christ. Amen. Um, today's sermon is a rare thing, and that is a sermon that I hope never applies. Usually as a preacher, um, you're looking for points of connection between um, the Bible passage uh, that you're teaching and uh, today's situation, our situation. Um, I mean, a sermon after all isn't just a lecture about scripture, is it? It should be lessons for uh, how we live for Jesus, um, that tell us how to live in the light of the great gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But today's passage concerns the difficult subject of church discipline. Um, That is the painful and hopefully very rare situations when a church has to distance themselves from someone who says they're a member of the church, but they're living a clearly and unrepentantly sinful life. Now that will be difficult, not just because conflict is always hard, but also because of what's hopefully ingrained in us about what church is and how we need to welcome everyone and anyone. We were thinking last week about how members of a church aren't just names on a membership list uh, or consumers of a service. No, being a member of a church is about being part of a body. We belong to one another. And so the unity of the church is a precious thing. It's traumatic to have to cut off part of your body, isn't it? And uh, this uh, is the same kind of trauma. We should be working hard to make relationships work to deepen fellowship between believers. And more than that, a healthy church should always be reaching out to outsiders. Just as Jesus ate and drank with sinners, so we should be welcoming to all sorts of people. You don't need to be sorted before you come to church. Um, I've said it before, a church isn't a beauty parade for people who are sorted. It's a hospital for people who are spiritually sick. And so teaching like today's about sometimes excluding people because of their sin, I think it should feel jarring and painful. If it doesn't strike us as difficult, I think there's something wrong. Let's try and understand, first of all, what this Bible passage is saying on its own terms. And then we'll think a little bit at the end about its right place alongside the rest of the Bible's teaching. Um, And there's a little outline inside your handout um, if you want to follow along. In the first part of the chapter, Paul says that church discipline is a good thing, first of all, for the sake of the sinner. It's a good thing for someone who's sinning. The passage opens with a public scandal. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, maybe not his own mother, but his stepmom. Um, the father might even have died. But it's still against the law of Moses. And in fact, it was shocking even amongst the non Christian culture of the time. What should the church have done about it? I wonder what you think we should do when there's a public scandal involving a member of our church. What should we do? Well, we're going to look at it. We're going to look at it. We might be tempted. We might be tempted to turn a blind eye. I think that's most often what we'd be tempted to do. It's none of our business, we might say, what someone does in the privacy of their bedroom. We might be tempted to gossip about it behind their back. Maybe we'll have an awkward conversation with them. I'm really not sure that that's what you should be doing. Just think about how we might react if something like this was going on in our church. If we're members of one body together, if church 
is a significant and a glorious thing. It is our business, isn't it? It is our business. What one part of the body does affects the whole. Paul says that it should be a matter of sorrow, verse 2. Verse 2, he says, shouldn't you have gone into mourning? And that sorrow may lead to separation. Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Now we know from other parts of the Bible that there are other steps that happen in between. Jesus himself deals with a very similar situation, not the same, but a similar situation in Matthew chapter 18. And he says, first we should speak to a person privately and individually, then we might need to take someone else with us for a private meeting. And only at the end of the process, if the person continues to sin, Jesus says in Matthew 18 verse 17, Jesus himself says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Church discipline means saying to someone, you call yourself a Christian, but you're living like a non-Christian. Until you stop living like a non-Christian, we're going to have to treat you like one. That means not enjoying the privileges of church membership. You can still come to church on Sundays. We welcome anyone uh, to our uh, public services, Christian or not. But you can't be treated as a member of the fellowship until you bring your actions into line with what you say you believe. Now that's painful and difficult, but it's actually the best thing for the sake of the sinner themselves. You see, what's the aim of the sorrow and the separation? It's salvation, verse 5. Let's just pick up again from verse 4. He says, when you're assembled, that is the churches together, and I am with you in spirit in the power of our Lord Jesus' presence, verse 5, hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You see, sin leads to death on the day of judgment. And so it might be tempting to ignore sin or to try half-heartedly to persuade someone to stop sinning, but it's not loving to leave it at that. It's not loving to leave it at that, to give them the impression that it doesn't really matter because they're on a path to judgment. No, by taking steps to distance ourselves from them, to make it clear that they don't belong in the body as long as they're behaving like this, it's actually a loving thing because it's aimed at their salvation. They're handed over to Satan. I take it that means that they're handed over to the non-Christian realm where Satan rules in the hope that they will come to their senses and repent and be saved. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about a couple of people in particular who he's handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. The aim of church discipline 
is restoration and salvation of the sinner. But it's not just about the sinner themselves. Because we're one body, what one part does affects the whole. And Paul seems even more shocked in this chapter by the church's reaction to the sin as he is by the sinner himself. Did you notice that as we read it? Beginning the passage again, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, verse two, and you are proud. That's the really shocking thing. The church is proud. Now, pride and arrogance seem to have been a particular problem with the church in Corinth. Maybe you remember when we looked at chapters 1 to 4 back in the autumn, Paul used those opening chapters to try to convict them of their pride and to re-establish his own authority among them. Just look at the last part of chapter 4, we can see that. Chapter 4, verse 18. He says, some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking but what power they have. Verse 21 he says what do you prefer shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit. Having pleaded with them to be humbled and to listen to him He then turns in the chapters that follow to some specific ethical issues for this particular church. The first of which is chapter five, verse one, is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and you're proud. Now it might be that their pride, their arrogance that he refers to here is is just part of their general problem. And so tolerating sin in their midst stands out. But it might be that they're proud even of the sin itself. That might be how we're meant to read it. See, sometimes people take the idea of Christian freedom from the laws of Moses in the Old Testament, and they take it so far that they don't just tolerate sin, they celebrate it. They say, we're we're forgiven by Jesus. We belong to him. We don't need to earn our salvation, we're free. We can do whatever we want. Look, we've got such wonderful freedom that one of our members is even shacked up with his mother-in-law. Or his, his, his stepmother, I should say. Now, very sadly, there are churches today that don't just tolerate sexual immorality and other sins but they celebrate them. And that is dangerous. It's dangerous not just for the sinner themselves, but it's dangerous for the whole church. So let's go on to look at church discipline for the sake of the church. Where there's unrepentant sin in the church, it's in danger of infecting the whole body. Now the illustration we might use today would be of cancer. When I had a tumour on my salivary gland three years ago, 
it was important that it was cut out. Not just for the sake of the diseased part of my tongue, but because if it was left there, it could start to infect my whole body. Cancer kills. Paul uses a different illustration, which is from his Jewish background. Look down at verse 6, please. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. And once a year, Jewish people searched the whole house to remove every trace of yeast or leavened bread to purge themselves of it entirely. And it's a tradition that goes back to the Exodus, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. When the Israelites were about to go to be brought out of slavery in Egypt, they had to bake unleavened bread, flat bread, and eat a Passover lamb. Why? Well, partly to separate themselves from the Egyptians around them. The Lord was about to bring judgment on Egypt, the curse of the firstborn. And the Israelites needed to mark themselves out as different. And so they purged themselves of leavened bread and they ate the Passover lamb who died as a sacrifice in their place. And leaven or yeast is then used throughout the rest of the Bible as an illustration for evil. When you add a small portion of leavened dough into a batch of bread, it invisibly spreads to it affects the whole batch. And that's the danger, says Paul, of leaving sin unchecked in the church. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, that is the feast of the unleavened bread, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When we live godly lives as the church, we're fulfilling the picture that we were given in the Old Testament of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So church discipline is important for the sake of the whole church. If we leave it unchecked, it actually tells the rest of the church sin doesn't really matter. You can do what you like, there are no consequences. And so we might see Uh, someone over here behaving in a particular way, sinning in a particular way, and no one seems to bat an eyelid, no one seems to do anything about it, and so someone over here will start to think, well, why am I saying no to my ungodly desires? I should do just whatever I want as well. And before we know it, tumours are breaking out all over the body. Church discipline is good for the sinner, it's good for the whole church. And actually, Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, but church discipline is good for outsiders as well. Because part of the role of a church is to be a witness to the watching world. 
Passages like Ephesians chapter 5 talk about our witness to outsiders. If sin carries on unchecked within the church, then instead of non-Christians seeing a body that is distinct and pure, light amidst a dark world, they'll see just the same reflection of the same mess of the world as a whole. Or even worse than other parts of society, like it is here. So I hope we can see then the case for church discipline. As I said at the beginning, I hope we never need to do it. But it's important to know in advance that it might sometimes be necessary. If we're clear on the principle, then hopefully that in itself is warning enough to us and will make it less likely that we ever need to use it. Let's come now just briefly to fitting it in with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. In particular, how does it fit in with Jesus saying, do not judge? I wonder how you would fit these things together. Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge, Matthew chapter 7. And yet here's Paul saying, uh, you need to judge this person. Well, Paul himself actually tells us here about one big area where we mustn't judge, and that's in verses 9 to 13. He says, don't judge outsiders. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, that is an earlier letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. There's a certain sort of nasty, harsh Christian that's always the po- pointing the finger at sin amongst non-Christians, amongst the outside world. Maybe you remember um, Westboro Baptist Church in the, in the States, uh, that for a while were always in the news for holding up placards um, with really quite nasty and unpleasant messages at pride parades and the like, condemning sinners to hell. No, that's not what Paul is talking about. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. Our job is to keep our own house in order. Hopefully, outsiders will see the purity of our witness. Of course, we'll want to warn them gently that there is a judgment to come, but it's not our job to condemn them or to punish them. We need to make sure we're not hypocrites that we're living our own ethics faithfully and attractively. So don't judge outsiders. We mustn't judge either just as individuals, as personal kind of vigilantes or crusaders within the church. Did you notice that all the language of 1 Corinthians 5 is corporate? It's about the whole church acting together to warn and then separate themselves from sinners. There's a role for church leaders like Paul himself here. But ultimately, church discipline isn't a kind of exercise of authority from the top. It's not just those with power excommunicating someone or removing them from a membership role. 
No, it's the collective relational action of the whole body of believers. Verse 11 says, do not even eat with such people. It's not easy to work out exactly what Paul has in mind here. After all, we have meals with non-Christians all the time. Jesus ate and drank with sinners. But presumably he's thinking about specific fellowship meals, situations where by nature of participation, we're implying that we're members of the body um, with one another. Now that must include Holy Communion, of course. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, it's a symbol of participation in the body of Christ. Usually when a church member falls into sin, they start to withdraw from the fellowship of their own accord. It's often the first sign that there's something wrong. Someone starts to be less regular at church, they stop going to the home group or to the prayer meeting, and it's only later that we realise that they've fallen into sin. If you become aware of a serious unrepentant sin within our church fellowship, if you feel able, by all means speak to the person individually and privately. If the problem persists, speak to one or two others, mature believers, maybe their small group leader or someone else respected in the church, and maybe go and speak to the person together. And then, if that doesn't solve the problem, come and speak to me or to other leaders, and we might need to, together, take a stance as a whole church to warn the person to aim for their salvation and to protect the body and our witness to the world. So do not judge is an important part of the Bible's teaching, but it can't be absolute in every situation. Paul's teaching here on the necessity of judgment doesn't contradict Jesus' teaching. Remember, Jesus himself taught that church discipline is sometimes necessary. We saw that earlier. It's in Matthew's Gospel, just as do not judge is in the same Gospel. So will we commit to the principle of church discipline if it becomes necessary at some point as a last resort. The teaching of 1 Corinthians 5 must apply in some circumstances. Paul is clear that the church sometimes must take action. Verse two, shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Verse five, hand this man over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Verse seven, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Verse 11, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. It's tough teaching, isn't it? It's meant to be painful. 
It's meant to be painful. But it's all part of the church being the precious, relational, united body of Christ. Are we committed enough to the body to admit that sometimes, hopefully very, very rarely, sometimes we may need to practice church discipline? Let's pray, shall we, that it's not needed in our fellowship for a long time to come. Our Father God, we thank you for this precious thing called the church, the body of Christ. Thank you, our Father, that you take it seriously enough to expect us to practice discipline within the body. We pray, dear Lord God, that we will get this right, that we won't be harsh and accusatory where we should be loving and understanding, but equally that we wouldn't be cowards, that we wouldn't duck the challenge, that we would be willing to take responsibility in this regard uh, when it's needed. Show us, we pray, uh, if it is needed at any point. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just to say, I realise that a topic like this will raise all sorts of questions and maybe objections and whatever else. Do um, take the opportunity over tea and coffee afterwards and at other times to, to chat about it with one another. Come and talk to me if um, uh, you're provoked by anything that you've heard this morning or you want to discuss further.